Daniel chapter 2. We're only going to read verse 20 through 23 now. And as I go through the sermon, I'll read the rest because the passage is extremely long. I'm not going to read through it twice in the service. Verse 20. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. Let's pray. Father, we ask that as we look at your word, your spirit would be at work. We ask that your spirit would be at work in us so that we would understand your word, that we'd understand what it is that, that you did in the life of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, that what you did in the life of Daniel, the way these two men did and did not trust in you, and the way that you faithfully laid out your promises to bring your kingdom in your son Jesus. Help us understand that. Help us to rejoice in the fact that your prophetic word is true, to find comfort in the sovereign goodness of our God. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been um, the week I came back from vacation. Sort of a rough week to come back from vacation. I'm glad that God saved the things that happened this week until I was off of vacation, right? But it's still been a rough week. and I'll, I'll tell you why. One, I was having to come alongside a fellow minister in the gospel and a brother in Christ and ask him to, be, to step down from a position of leadership in an organization I'm involved with. It's a man I respect, I look up to, I think highly of, but um, a man who unfortunately allowed his sin to get the better of him. And, and I had to come alongside him and help him and thank God he has faithful brothers who are helping him in the restoration process. But it was a rough thing to go through. Come back after that, just a day or two later, and get a call about a couple in our church whose baby has died in the womb and who have to go to the hospital and give birth, go through the whole labor process and give birth to that child that's stillborn. And you walk through that stuff and you, you think to yourself, how do you walk through any of this stuff with peace? I mean, this kind of stuff is horrible to watch. Meanwhile, you turn on the news and you hear about wars that are happening in the world and rumors of wars that are coming. You hear about genocide that's happening in certain countries. You hear about terrorist attacks that are happening around, all around the world. If you pay much attention to what's happening in the, Christ, in the Christian parts of this world, there are on average since 1990 160,000 Christians that are martyred every year in this world. So we think the martyrs were all back then. This last year, on average, 160,000 Christians were martyred. I see marriages falling apart. I see babies being slaughtered by the millions under the guise of a right in our own country. 
I see a political system that's a mess, completely awash in immorality. You watch our culture calling good what God calls evil and calling evil what God calls good. See people practicing, not only practicing sins God forbids, but approving of those who practice those sins that God forbids. And you think, where's God in all this? Lord, are you paying any attention? Do you care? How do I trust you? How do I have any sense of peace when I see this mess around us? When I know that either tomorrow, Monday, or Thursday of this week, the U.S. Supreme Court is going to rule on whether traditional marriage will continue to be upheld or dismantled in the state of California and, frankly, the rest of the country. And you think to yourself, it is insane that we're even having that discussion. The world's a mess around us. And what's crazy is we can say that the world is a mess around us as those who live in a country that still retains a tremendous amount of freedom and prosperity. What must it be like to live in a third world country where you're oppressed, both financially and politically, in real ways? How must believers there struggle with the realities of sin and suffering and evil and death? So as a Christian, how can I continue to believe that God is involved in the world when it looks like the world is falling apart? See, how can I walk with peace and trust in the Lord through a fallen world like this one? I know this, at the very least, it makes me want to pray even more what Jesus, when he taught us to pray, said, pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Is God still sovereign in all this mess? See, is he at work among us in bringing this sinful, fallen, and broken state of affairs to an end? Often doesn't look that way, does it? Let's be honest. I hear Christians all around me saying, listen, the United States is crumbling from within, and we are. And from without, our enemies are growing. It's a mess in this world. What are we going to do? And I hear Christians growing in fear in the midst of that, growing in almost a panic, trying to find whatever way they can to try to stop the tide of it. And I'm not saying don't work to stem the tide of that. But what I am saying is that if you're motivated by fear and anxiety and sleeplessness and worry, then you don't understand who your God is. And you don't understand what he's doing in history. See, Daniel 2 has an answer for us as to what it looks like to walk with peace with God in tumultuous times. I want you to think about the context of this book. Daniel, as Jason went into last week, is a book written by a prophet, Daniel, of a people, the Jews, who were in exile. And the events took place largely in the 6th century B.C. Although Nebuchadnezzar came in and swept through the area and conquered the area in about 605 B.C., the events of this book continue over an almost 70-year period. It's this period of exile, when the Jews are in exile, this recounts much of the history of that period and gives us many prophetic words in the midst of that period. And I want you to think about that period. Here is Daniel. He has watched his people, and I want you to hear about these two people. Daniel's watched his people, the Jews, exiled because of their sin. See, he's watched his nation fall apart internally because it was so corrupted with idolatry and sin. 
He has watched his people slaughtered. He has watched his people get conquered and now being exiled by, being carried off into captivity by an evil pagan ruler named Nebuchadnezzar, a tyrant. And Daniel has had to live under the rule of that tyrant. And Daniel lives under the rule of a tyrant who is bathing his kingdom in idolatry. And he's been forced into a pagan education system that teaches things that are fundamentally contrary to everything he believes. And he's even given a name that expressly exalts a false god in whom he doesn't believe. Now imagine being Daniel in this situation. Young man watches his nation fall apart because of their sin. Watches another nation conquer his nation. Watches them be carried off into exile. Watches them being carried off into captivity. Watches them be bathed in pagan idolatry through education, through their renaming, through the way that the whole culture runs. And further, Daniel finds out in chapter 2 that there's a death sentence on his head given by this tyrant of a king. Now I want to ask you a question. Would you be distraught? even mildly distraught? Would you not wonder whether God cares or where God is or whether God is coming to rescue you? Wouldn't you wonder, is God really in control of this? Wouldn't you struggle with anxiety? Maybe struggle with an inability to sleep? Maybe struggle with distrust toward God and other people? How about anger over your situation? See, that's that's the situation Daniel's in and those are the reactions we expect from him, right? but they're not the reactions we get from him. And then you have the story of Nebuchadnezzar. Now imagine being Nebuchadnezzar. You have just conquered the known world. You are the most powerful, wealthy man in the world. You have everything that you desire. Everything your eyes set upon is yours. People must obey you unconditionally. You can have their head any moment you ask for it. You have utter and complete control over everything as far as you can tell. Now you would think if you're Nebuchadnezzar that you would feel at peace. All the circumstances are going my way. Every circumstance in life is going my way. The world is really my oyster. It's not just something I read in a fortune cookie. It's true. You think you sleep like a baby. Be joyful, right? You got it all. You have struck the lo- and won the lottery in life. So, why is it that as we look at Daniel 2, which we're going to walk through, we see Daniel is the man at rest, at peace, trusting, wise. And Nebuchadnezzar is the man who's anxious and who can't sleep and who's angry. Let's look at the text and and see why we see the opposite of what we might expect given their circumstances. And let's start with Nebuchadnezzar. Start with Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel chapter 2, verse 1. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, this is giving us a little, a little marker of the point in time in history. This is in the second year, and you say, well, isn't it in Daniel chapter 1? It seems like there were three years already recorded there. There really weren't. There were three periods of time that ends up adding into the second year, and so I don't have time to get into all that, but this is the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. He had dreams. Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. Notice multiple dreams, more than one dream. He seemed to have had 
one particular dream, but he was dreaming that multiple nights, thus dreams. He's having the same dream over and over and over again. He had dreams. His spirit was troubled. He was anxious. These dreams he was having were haunting him. And he was anxious about them. And his sleep left him. So now he becomes sleepless. He has insomnia. So here's a man who rules the world. Second year of his reign, ruling the world. And he is so anxious about a dream that he can't sleep. If you think about that contrast, you have the whole world in the palm of your hand, but a dream, just a dream, something as simple as that is keeping you from sleeping. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. In other words, I want you to come and tell me, this king's saying, I want all these men to come. Bring them all. If you have a wise man out there, if you have a man who's in touch with the gods in any way, shape, or form, anybody who can pull a rabbit out of the hat, I want you to have him come and tell me my dream. And the king said to them, so, so they came in and stood before the king, verse 3, and the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. In other words, it seems to be either he's forgetting it, and he's just being troubled by it. We don't really know if he's forgetting it and being troubled by it, or if he's just wanting the, these wise men to prove that their interpretation is valid by actually providing him with the dream first. So I want you to tell me, then verse 4, then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. See, they start off with the proper address of a king. O king, live forever, right? They're showing him his due honor, and then they're telling him, if we, we, you will interpret the dream if you just tell us what the dream is. See, at this point, they can't, they can't tell him the dream. It's going to start frustrating him. But there's a little detail there in verse 4 that ought to jump out at you right away. If you see, then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic. Now, why, why does he tell us that they said it in Aramaic? What's that about? The reason this is important for the book of Daniel is it's probably more important than you know because we're all reading this in English. And there's something that we don't see in English because we're reading English that will stand out very, very clearly to you if you're reading this in Hebrew, which is that from Daniel 2, verse 4, all the way through the end of Daniel chapter 7, that whole section of Daniel is in Aramaic. Aramaic is sort of the street language of the day. It's not quite the formal Hebrew. It's a variation of it that's kind of a street Hebrew. It was quite popular in that day. And these guys are talking to the king in Aramaic. But for whatever reason, and I think I understand what the reason is, Daniel starts this section from chapter 2, verse 4, all the way through chapter 7, and puts that all in Aramaic. Chapter 1 all the way up to this point is Hebrew. Chapter 8 through 12, Hebrew. Why 2 through 7 in Aramaic? Because it seems that Daniel's wanting to point something out from a literary perspective. He's wanting to tell us something. He's wanting to highlight something. So he puts it all in Aramaic so we don't miss what's happened. And what's happened is this. There's a structure in a Hebrew literary device called a chiasm or a chiastic structure. Now, you, know, you may never have heard of that, and you might, why, why is it helpful? Let me tell you why. A chiastic structure is a literary device where it, it lines things up, and it, 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 it's, a, it's a structure that's kind of a ladder that goes this way, and then goes this way. You follow me? So chapter 2 actually lines up with chapter 7. What do I mean by that? 
Chapter 2 is about Nebuchadnezzar's dream about these four kingdoms. Chapter 7 is Daniel's vision of four kingdoms. Chapter 3 lines up with chapter 6. Chapter 3 is about what? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. What's chapter 6 about? Daniel in the lion's den. Do you see the corollary there? And then chapter 4 lines up with chapter 5. And the ladder moves this way. 2, 7, and you just drop in just a little bit. 3, 6, you drop in a little bit. 4, 5. And those 4 and 5 hit the center of that chiastic structure, which is the highlight of it. Chapter 4 is about Nebuchadnezzar going crazy and repenting and following God. In other words, God brings judgment to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar goes crazy, and then he repents and comes back to his senses. And chapter 5 is about Belshazzar, who is the king after Nebuchadnezzar, who is also evil like Nebuchadnezzar is, and God doesn't bring him to repentance. God takes him out. In chapter 4, God shows mercy to an evil king. In chapter 5, God shows justice to an evil king. And what is Daniel trying to highlight in all of this? He's trying to tell us that God does what he wills in the history of man. That he shows mercy to whom he will show mercy and compassion to whom he will show compassion. And that make no mistake about it, while these men look like they may be ruling, the one who is on the throne is God. You trust in him. And so that's where this is all being highlighted. A little bit off of that word Aramaic, right? But you'll see as we walk through the rest of these chapters. O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will show you the interpretation. So they are unable to come up with the dream. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. Notice, we we still can't tell you the dream, king. We can tell you the interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you're trying to gain time. You know what that means, right? You're trying to stall. And why are you trying to stall? Because you know I'm about to kill you. Because you can't do what I'm asking. Okay, you're trying to gain time because... You see that the word for me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. Now notice his distrust in this next phrase. You've seen his anxiety and his sleeplessness. Now here comes his distrust. You've agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. What's interesting about this is Nebuchadnezzar is under the persuasion for some reason that these magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, Chaldeans, etc., have gotten together and plotted together to protect their own skins by lying to him and by stalling until somehow the times change, until he's in a better mood, until maybe things get squared away and he starts sleeping well. They're scheming behind his back. And the reason Nebuchadnezzar believes that that's the kind of men he's talking to is because that's the kind of man he is. And the fact is that oftentimes the sin that we think we see in others is merely a reflection of our own heart. We suspect them of what we're capable of, 
even though they may not be doing that at all. And that's what's happening here with this man. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. In other words, I'm not going to believe your interpretation. You can scam me until you show me the dream. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. And the Chaldeans are right about this. There isn't a man on earth who can meet the king's demands. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. In other words, you're going to have to look to something beyond us because human hands can't do this. Human flesh can't deliver. It's going to be take something bigger than us. And they're right about that. What's interesting is that Nebuchadnezzar is anxious. He can't sleep. He's distrusting and he's angry. If you look at the next thing after they say that, verse 12, because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So now, now, how is a man who has everything he could ever want so anxious and sleepless and distrusting and full of anger? It's happening because Nebuchadnezzar has elusive goals. His heart is set on very elusive goals. He's gotten everything and yet finds that, that keeping it all is elusive to him. You see, we all suspect, don't we, that life only really holds out temporal promise. Yet we grasp for that temporal promise, don't we? We lose sleep over trying to keep our grip on those temporal promises. We feel anxiety over somehow keeping a hold of that mirage in the desert. We get angry and distrusting because we think others might be taking away from us the hope of that promise that's just temporal. Or others might be taking away from us our ability to keep hold of that promise that we think we have. And that's where Nebuchadnezzar is. He's gotten it all. And now he's afraid he's going to lose it. You know what this is like? If you have children, you especially know what this is like. Because you look at those children, you've gotten them. God has given them to you. They're a gift. And you become anxious about them and distrusting you become angry when your idols disappoint you, right, around the house. You lose sleep over them. This happens over when you get that job you wanted. By the way, this also happens when you're trying to get that goal you don't have. See, I'm at work trying to get this goal, and I want this, and that guy's in my way, and I don't trust that guy. I don't trust him. He's, he's looking out for my worst interests. You know what this is like, right? shows you something about our hearts, doesn't it? And that's where Nebuchadnezzar is. What's crazy is we know all this can be taken from us at any moment. Yet we're searching for that one set of circumstances to come in in which we think once that set of circumstances comes true, then our hearts can find rest. See, Nebuchadnezzar has gotten it all, and his heart still has no rest. He still can't sleep. He still has no peace. He wants someone to come in. You magicians, come in and answer this question and give me rest, or I will kill you. I don't trust you. I can't rest. I'm afraid I'm going to lose everything I have. See, if I just get the circumstances right, if my debt just gets paid off. See, when, when my family pays off our debt, boy, 
then we'll really be able to rest. When I just get this weight off, this extra weight I don't want to carry around, and that, then I'll rest. When I just find some healing for my marriage, then I'll rest. When we just get past our child being sick, man, then we'll be able to rest. When I finally land the right job, when I finally get to this season of life, when I, and we go on and on, don't we? It's in high school, man, when I can drive. Get the driver's license, man, when I turn 18 and I'm an adult. Come an adult, man, when I graduate from college and when I turn 21 and then I'm a real full-fledged adult in the culture. I get out of college, man, when I land the right job, land the right job, man, when I get married, get married, man, when we buy the house we've always wanted, get the house, man, when we have the kids we've always wanted, get the kids, man, when the kids actually become the kids we've always wanted. Right? And you just keep going down the line. Man, when we retire, when I get that promotion, and the next thing you know, you're dead. There you go. No rest, no peace. See, if I just get everything I want, then my heart will finally find rest. And it won't. It won't. If you're looking to these elusive goals to give you rest, you will soon find those goals are like a mirage in the desert. That's why Augustine, one of the early church fathers, said that the human heart is restless until it finds its rest in God. Our circumstances are not determinative of whether our hearts are at rest or at war within us. Our trust in the sovereign goodness of God is determinative of whether our hearts find rest or not. When Nebuchadnezzar was confronted with the fact that he is not God and that not a man on earth is God, he became angry. Nebuchadnezzar wanted everyone to answer him. He wanted no one that he had to answer to. He was quickly learning that he was not sovereign and that all his power could not solve his one little problem, which was he was terrorized in the night that his whole world was being ripped from him and he could do nothing to stop it. How often are we ourselves caught up in anxiety as we lay there in bed, unable to sleep, distrusting others, angry that things aren't going the way we want them to because we're gripping for dear life onto the evaporative and elusive promises of this world. See, people are quite literally losing their minds over their inability to control the circumstances of their lives. They've struggled their whole lives to find rest where only sleeplessness and anxiety can be found. Changing your circumstances will never give you rest. It may alleviate a temporary anxiety, but it'll never give you the ultimate rest that you're looking for. So let's look at Daniel, verse 13, and see the contrast. Verse 13 through 30 will move fairly quickly. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. See, the death penalty is coming for him as well. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch. Here's Daniel, who is wise in the midst of a very difficult situation. The captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon, He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. 
And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation of the king. In other words, king, give me some time. Give me some time. And I will come back and tell you your dream and its interpretation. There's a lot of confidence there, isn't there? Then Daniel went to, verse 17, went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. Those are their Hebrew names that worship Yahweh. You hear them in chapter 1, and in chapter 3 you'll hear them called Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those are their pagan names, their Babylonian names. Same three guys. Daniel gathers them together in verse 18, and he told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. So Daniel's in the midst of turmoil. He's been told he has a death sentence from a tyrannical king. And how does he handle it? He handles it with wisdom and patience, and he gets his friends together, and they pray. Now my point isn't, you ought to call a prayer meeting every time something like this happens. Something like this will rarely happen to you. If ever... The point is the kind of man Daniel was, the kind of man who was trusting in the sovereign goodness of God, who in the midst of very difficult circumstances was at rest because he knew who to go to. And so he goes to the Lord and they pray, and he believes that God, that God, this God is a God of mercy. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel, verse 19, in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven, Daniel answered and said, and it seems that the whole chapter of chapter 2 points to this worship of Daniel. Daniel worships God for God's response to him. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Now, I want you to understand the context here. Here is a man who is a young man, likely in his teenage years, who's watched his people utterly devastated, killed by the thousands, who's under the rule of a tyrannical king, who's being oppressed into a false religious system via his education and his renaming. Here's a man who has everything going wrong for him, including the fact that there's the death penalty coming from him if he doesn't get this right in front of Nebuchadnezzar. And that man is saying, blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. Yes, the man who just watched his kings overthrown and he watched God set up a pagan king to conquer his people and lead them into idolatry and slaughter them by the thousands, that man was set up by God and Daniel's singing that. How many of us can say that even when a new president gets elected? How many of you wake up the day after a presidential election in which you're incredibly disappointed by the outcome, which has been happening a lot lately, and you say, blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise. Knowledge of those who have no understanding. See, Daniel's admitting, I have no hope of answering the king's question apart from God giving me the wisdom. That's why these Chaldeans and magicians and sorcerers, and they can't help you. 
Because they don't fear the Lord. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. For you have given me wisdom and might and have made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show you the king. Excuse me, I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste, and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, that's Daniel's pagan name, that's how the king addressed him, are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. You hear that? He repeats exactly what these guys have said, didn't he? No human being can show this to you. And when he asks Daniel, Daniel, can you show me? Daniel says, no wise man can do that. That includes me. No man can do that. He goes on, verse 28, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. In other words, King Nebuchadnezzar, he just told you something about the end times. The eschaton. The last things. Your dreams and the visions of your head as you lay in your bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. See, Daniel is trusting and confident and wise and prayerful in this whole situation because he trusts in God. Daniel's at rest in, these, in every circumstance, even in a circumstance in which he's under the sentence of death because he believes in the God of mercies to whom he's appealed. Because he believes in what he sang in verse 20 through 23. Because he believes what he said when he said, no man can do this, but there is a God in heaven who can. That's why Daniel's at rest. See, ultimately Daniel believes God is at work in history, even when he can't see it. And he believes God will bring about his promises, the promises he made to his people. See, Daniel knows that the Lord had covenanted to show good to his people. He covenanted to do good to them. He's promised to bless them eternally in his kingdom. And Daniel believes in God, and he believes in God's promises, even when it's exceedingly difficult to see how it could be so. And they pro the Lord provides an answer to Nebuchadnezzar that had to be incredibly comforting to Daniel and his friends. See, Nebuchadnezzar thinks he's this conquering king. And what Daniel says is, I want you to understand something, King Nebuchadnezzar. The dream you had, the reason it terrifies you so, is because you just found out from the Lord that it ain't about you that you were put here by God and he's planning to take you out and he's establishing his kingdom that you're merely a role player you're merely a pawn on his board he has a larger plan that you're a small part of and you think you're a great king that's why you're not sleeping well so let me tell you what his plan is 
Let me tell you what his plan is. So let's look at the dream. He's bringing about the kingdom of Christ. Verse 31 and following. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold. It's a big statue with a head, fine gold, and its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its leg of, legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. So there's four different parts to this statue that are being described to him. As you look, the stone was cut out by no human hand. Now notice that theme that's coming through. No human can do this. No human can do this. No human can do this. A stone is cut out, as you look, by no human hand. And it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So here's the picture. You have this statue, this image he's seen with a gold head and silver chest and arms and this bronze midsection and legs and these iron part, bottom part of the legs and feet mixed with clay. And then you have this separate stone that's taken out of a mountain by God. And that stone comes in and begins to crush that statue starting at the feet. And crushes that statue till it's no more. All of it. And then that small stone grows and grows and grows until it fills the whole earth. That's the image he saw. That's a freaky dream. You gotta admit, right? <clears throat> this was the dream, verse 36. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom... Notice that phrase. Daniel knows who got that, who gave Nebuchadnezzar that kingdom, doesn't he? To whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory. And into whose hand he is given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. God has put you in this place, Nebuchadnezzar. You will be the most powerful king in the world because God put you there. I want you to know something. You were the head of gold on that statue. You were the head of gold. Next phrase. Another kingdom, verse 39. Another kingdom inferior to you shall rise after you. That kingdom, so if you're in the kingdom of Babylon with the head of gold, the kingdom that arises after him is later detailed in Daniel chapter 5 and in Daniel chapter, five and in Daniel chapter 6, which is the kingdom of Medo-Persia comes right after the kingdom of Babylon. That's the silver chest and arms, the kingdom of Medo-Persia. It'll arise after you. Daniel was alive to see the kingdom of Medo-Persia. And yet, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. In other words, there's a third kingdom coming, and the kingdom after Medo-Persia, so you know, is the kingdom of Greece. Daniel was not alive to see the kingdom of Greece. The kingdom of Greece and all that entails is actually detailed in quite a bit in chapter, Daniel chapter 8 and following. We'll talk about that as we get there. So here's a prophetic word. 
After you, Nebuchadnezzar, after Babylon, is coming another kingdom, which will be described as Medo-Persia. Daniel lived through that kingdom, through a portion of it anyway. And after that kingdom will come Greece. Daniel was not around for that kingdom, though he describes it in quite explicit detail prophetically. And after that kingdom, verse 40, and there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and the toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of iron shall be left in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And those of the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. In other words, there's this long description of the fourth kingdom. And there's a reason for that, because the fourth kingdom is the last kingdom in this dream. And the fourth kingdom is the kingdom that comes after Greece. And if you've studied history recently, you know what kingdom comes after Greece, and that's called Rome. And what he's describing here is the kingdom of Rome. It's following Greece. He says, when that kingdom of Rome comes, that will be the final kingdom. Not in all of human history, but the final kingdom before what God is about to bring. Look at the next verse. And in the days of those kings, in other words, those kings he's just talked about, those four kingdoms, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and break, bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in, the, in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. See, I want you to think about this. What he's saying is that, Nebuchadnezzar, you're merely one of four kingdoms in order here, the fourth kingdom of which the kingdom of God will come during that kingdom. And when that kingdom of God comes, it will start off small like a stone, and it will grow and crush all the other kingdoms of the earth. It will supersede everything that came before it, and it will be eternal. Now, what could he possibly be talking about? That this kingdom be set up by no human hand. And then we open up something like Luke chapter 1, and we read a passage like, there's this young woman named Mary, and the Holy Spirit is brooding over her womb, just as the Holy Spirit brooded over the surface of the deep at creation. And the Holy Spirit is creating in her the king, the son of David, whom we're told in Luke 1 will sit on his throne forever, created by no human hand, a man sent by God who will be the great king. And then we hear that young man who comes from the womb of Mary walk out among his people while they're being persecuted, while they're in exile to Rome in some sense. And he says among them, Behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent 
Why is it at hand? Because the king is here. And as he does miracles, he says, if you see the Holy Spirit or the finger of God doing this, then you know the kingdom has come. How has it come? Because I'm here. And then he stands in front of his disciples and says things like what? My kingdom will start off like a mustard seed. It'll start off small, and it will grow and cover the whole earth. And then we're told of that man, that he is the stone, the cornerstone, whom the builders rejected. He is the rock of offense, the stone of stumbling. He is the one who crushes those who do not turn to him. And we wonder, is there any way in which the gospel writers are picking up on Daniel chapter 2 and saying what Nebuchadnezzar was dreaming about, what Jesus understands Nebuchadnezzar is dreaming about, and the apostles understand that Nebuchadnezzar is dreaming about, is Jesus and his kingdom that comes with him. Because Jesus is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the king sent from God to establish his eternal kingdom. He is the rock cut out of the mountain. He is the stone over whom many will stumble, stumble and be crushed. Jesus is the king, and he's brought the eternal kingdom. See, Jesus is the one whom Nebuchadnezzar dreamed about, and Jesus' kingdom is that kingdom that Nebuchadnezzar feared. And when Nebuchadnezzar heard the answer to his dream, and we'll see that, by the way, played out in the rest of Daniel, but when Nebuchadnezzar heard the answer to his dream, we see how he responds. Look at verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering, an incense, be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, now notice these words, your God. Nebuchadnezzar still is not worshiping this God. He's, he's giving thanks to Daniel's God. Not my God, your God. Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you've been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon, but Daniel remained at the king's court. See, here's the thing. Nebuchadnezzar feared and revered Daniel's God. He pays homage to Daniel and his God, but he still doesn't believe in and trust in Daniel's God. He doesn't repent. Nebuchadnezzar is still up to his old ways. He wants to use Daniel and his God now. That's awesome that you can do that. You can come up with my dream and tell me it's interpretation. Amazing. I'm putting you right here where I can keep you around all the time so I can use you and your, you and your God to my advantage. How often do we do that? He doesn't repent. He just wants to use Daniel's God. He wants to appease him so he can get what he wants. Man, how many of our people out there are running to supposed Christian prophets and priests on television who are telling them, if you just give money to me, you can use me to get what you want? There's a whole station dedicated to people who want to take advantage of Daniel and Daniel's God. There are churches out there that are committed to using God for their own ends. That isn't repentance. That isn't trusting in his sovereign goodness even in difficult circumstances. 
That is squeezing him for every good circumstance you can get out of him. It's idolatry. And it's an abomination. But Nebuchadnezzar doesn't get it yet, but he will. So, what's the correct response? How do we respond correctly? Let me, let me just give you three quick things. And they are very quick. First, find your rest in Jesus. You want rest? Find it in him. What does Jesus say? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Look to him. He's the rest for your souls. You don't know Jesus right now? If you're not looking to him in faith, you're not a believer, now's the time. Look to him. He'll save you, forgive you for your sins. If you trust in him, if you recognize you're a sinner, you have no hope without him, and you look to him in faith, you will be saved. Find your rest in him. Draw to him right now. If you are a believer and you've forgotten that your rest is in him, flee back to him. Run back to him and rest in him. You might say, but you know what? I, I'm trying to rest in Jesus, but it's all still a mess. Yeah, it is all still a mess. That's because we live in the already and the not yet of the kingdom of God. What do I mean by that? I mean that we have all of these things that are already true in the kingdom of God. We have these spiritual promises. We're a new creation spiritually. We're forgiven for our sins. We have all these promises that we're heirs of all things in Christ. All that's true. What we don't yet have, though, is the not yet part of that promise that sin and suffering and death will be ended, that we will be resurrected physically and not just spiritually, that Jesus will reign on all the earth and that all, be, all the things that we sorrow over will be put to an end. That's the not yet. But you can still rest in the already, knowing that the not yet is coming because you trust the God who is sovereignly good to us. And you see all the evidence of that goodness in Jesus and God's willingness to lay him down at the cross for your sake. What other picture of his goodness do you need than the crushing of his own son for your salvation? What more evidence do you need to believe he's good? This leads to my next two applications. Pray for God's kingdom to come. We're praying, God uses means. He decrees the ends and the means to those ends. And the means to the ends of his kingdom coming are his people praying that it will come. That's why Jesus tells us, when you pray, pray like this. Now Jesus isn't saying repeat these words every time. He's giving you a model. And the first thing he says is, pray, hallowed be your name, that my name would be exalted and holy. And the second thing he says is, pray, your kingdom come. What does that mean? It means I want God's kingdom consummated now. I want an end to suffering and sorrow and sin and death. I want Jesus to return in the clouds. I want to hear the trumpets blow. I want to see the people resurrecting from their graves. I want to join him in eternal joy as he makes a new heavens and new earth for us to live in. I'm begging him to do that now and I'm going to persist in it. And if you don't think you should persist in that prayer, go read Luke 18. Jesus is very clear that we persist in that and that when his people persist in asking your kingdom come, then he will come. Do we change a timeline? No, but he uses means and his means are our prayer. So we pray your kingdom come. Third, 
Don't focus on when his kingdom will come, i.e. be consummated. It's already here in one sense, but the not yet part I'm talking about. Don't focus on when it will be consummated, but on what we're to do until then. See, we're living as citizens of God's kingdom even now. And what has our king told us to do until his kingdom is consummated? It's really clear. I'll just give you the one version out of Acts 1.8, or 1.6 I'll start with, because the apostles want to know, what do we do while we wait for your kingdom, Jesus? While we wait for the consummation, what do we do? Verse 6 of chapter 1 of Acts, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this this time restore the kingdom of Israel? In other words, is the kingdom going to be consummated now? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. In other words, don't worry about your calendars. Put your calendar away. As Dave Burdett said here a few weeks ago, put away your calendar and get out your map. Put away your calendar and look what he says. But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth among the Jews and the Samaritans and all the Gentiles. That's our commission. Go tell people about Jesus. That's what we do as citizens of the kingdom. We proclaim the kingdom and the Christ of that kingdom. And we pray for him to come. And we rest him in, in him until he does. I, I, I need to warn you as we get into the rest of Daniel, I know I've gone long, but this is a long chapter. So you just have to deal with it, right? As we get into the rest of Daniel, we're going to get into, peri- not, not so much here until chapter 7 and then chapter 7 through 12 particularly, we're getting into a lot of apocalyptic, prophetic utterances about what's to come. What, what was to come from the perspective of Daniel looking forward to Christ and to some degree what's to come beyond Christ. And, and at, every time you get into a book like this and into passages like this, we start talking about eschatology. The, what's eschatology? Eschatos meaning the last things and eschatology is the study of the last things, the study of the last days. And every time that happens our concern starts to become the timing of everything. We want to open a newspaper and say, does this match up to this? But it's not supposed to be our concern. Jesus says it clearly to the apostles. Stop putting, put away your newspaper, put away your calendar, and take out your map. Do your duty. This is what you're supposed to do. See, our concern is to see the Christ to whom Daniel was looking to see him and to point to him in every part of the world. That's the purpose of eschatology, to drive us to rest in Christ who will consummate his kingdom, to drive us to pray that he will bring his kingdom soon, to drive us to take the message of his kingdom to a lost and dying world who is still caught up in the kingdom of darkness and needs to be delivered into the kingdom of his beloved son. Not to get out our newspapers, and speculate about how we're going to line this detail up with that in the Bible. Frankly, that leads to more disobedience of the clear commands of scriptures than it does to any kind of fruitfulness. Let me pray. Father, we ask we ask that we would be a people who rest in your son Jesus. That we be a people who hear your word, see 
your prophecies coming true in history. See that Daniel prophesied things over 500 years before they happened and they were fulfilled. The encouragement that gives us with regard to your word, but but more importantly, that he prophesied the Christ who brought his kingdom, kingdom into which we've been saved and the kingdom which we pray will be consummated soon. Come again, Lord Jesus. Come soon, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.